Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is the distinguished anthropologist Talal Assad, who is the 2008 Forster Lecturer on the Berkeley campus. Uh, Professor Assad, welcome to Berkeley. Thank you very much. Where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in Saudi Arabia, actually, because my mother comes from there, and my parents moved when I was a couple of years old to India and then eventually to Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So I was raised both in India and in Pakistan. Well, uh, in very different ways. My mother was a very traditional woman. My father actually was um, an Austrian Jew who had uh, converted to Islam in his 20s and was a correspondent, a foreign correspondent for the Frankfurter Allgemeine uh, Zeitung and uh, for the Neue Zürcher Zeitung as well. In the 30s he had to give up the, the first one, the, the Frankfurter one, because he was not allowed to continue. Um, and uh, he was very interested in the Middle East, and uh, that was where he eventually settled for six years in Saudi Arabia, married my mother, um, and moved on to, to India, partly for reasons, uh, journalistic reasons, but also because he had friends who urged him to come. So the question about what, how they shaped my views. Well, certainly my father was much more aware of, as it were, um, a European heritage as well as a heritage uh, of uh, the Middle East, uh, to which he was very attracted. Um, and uh, although he had uh, a relative, his mother's relatives, in Palestine at the time, in the 20s, he was born in 1900. Mm -hmm. And he converted when? And he converted in his mid-20s. I see. Uh, and he died in 1992 in Spain. He's uh, mm -hmm. buried there. Um, but he was always a, really a strong anti-Zionist. He felt that this was a great mistake, even before he became, uh, mm -hmm. before he was converted. Mm -hmm. So, so you, I, I, what I'm hearing you say is you, you must have gotten a real sense of, of the diversity of the world and the, and the complexity of the world from them. Absolutely. And I was, I was a child, but uh, my father was interned during the war uh, as an uh, Austrian citizen, even though he was a Jew, um, by the British. It was, of course, British India at the time. Uh, and I was a child. And, uh, but most of the people there during those years were, in fact, from Central Europe mm -hmm. who had been brought together. So I have memories of them as well. And then shortly after the war, um, we went to uh, the Punjab, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, became uh, Pakistan. And, uh, you know, I, I was very much aware of uh, many of the things that, that were going on politically there as well. My father was quite active intellectually in, in Pakistan as well. Mm -hmm. And, and, and were you raised in the, uh, uh, in, in the Islamic... Uh, I was, yeah, indeed, yeah. yes, very much so. Um, my mother being a very uh, pious woman who, mm -hmm. who was not at all an intellectual, um, but uh, who, in some ways, looking back on it, I can see uh, 
that her approach to her religion in some ways unconsciously made me aware of different approaches, and that is of, a, of an unreflective, um, what, what people have called an embodied uh, approach to religion rather than a, a highly intellectualized one. My mother was not an intellectual, of mm-hmm. course. So the religion is really part of the way people live. Is that is That's right, right, exactly. Yeah. That was certainly so. Yeah. That was certainly for, for my father. It was, it was even more an intellectual matter, too. He thought of this as a, as a kind of an, uh, an intellectual promise, so to speak, of, of, uh, uh, of Islam as, as a way of living within a community and, and within a political uh, community and so on. I, I believe I read somewhere that, that uh, as a Muslim, you were actually, but you were educated among Christians That's in a right. school, and, and that, that must have been a kind of a, another layer of a, of a sensitivity to diversity. Very much so. Um, it was a boarding school, uh, and the teachers were, were British missionaries there. And um, I, I, I can remember being a very uh, uh, obstreperous uh, boy who was determined to, as it were, hold on to, to his own uh, religious identity among uh, others who were mostly Christians, but you know it wasn't a it wasn't a very conflictual situation in, in school. I don't want to suggest that, but certainly difference was. You're right, was very much a part of my early experience. And uh, how did your education beyond you know the, these uh, uh, first schools, but more your advanced education uh, in England, mm-hmm. impact uh, and? Your, your future scholarship? Well, I came to England um, at the age of 18, and uh, I was, in fact, uh, going to become an architect. That was my father's choice. He decided for various reasons, because he was also perhaps an architect manqué. Uh, he thought, A, it was, it was a wonderful profession, and B, he thought I needed a certain amount of discipline as well as an opportunity to be creative, and what could be better than being an architect. So he chose for me the profession. I went to London and uh, did architecture, uh, not very successfully because my heart wasn't in it for two years, in the Architectural Association School of Architecture in London. Um, But I really wanted to be an anthropologist. Mm. Um, And then I went after that to took my own decision and, and went and uh, did architecture in Edinburgh. Uh, sorry, uh, anthropology in Edinburgh. I left architecture. And after that, I went to, to Oxford, where I did uh, both my first uh, postgraduate degree and my DPhil, the PhD, mm-hmm. uh, in, in Oxford. And, and uh, <coughs> did you uh, focus on religious studies? And what was your dissertation on? Uh, no, not at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had, to some degree, uh, although I was brought up uh, in, a, in a sort of a fairly conventional religious uh, way, perhaps not quite so conventional, obviously, because given my parents' uh, background, but um, I, had, I had, to some extent, revolted uh, and uh, felt myself to be... Uh, to have have uh, lost my faith uh, already at the age of about fourteen and so on, um, and I wanted very much to come to 
to Europe, uh, which I uh, regarded as as uh, a source of of all the wonderful things that seemed somehow not to be present in uh, in Pakistan uh, at the time. And I remember that my father tried to, in his own way, to disabuse me of of some of my ideas, which were rather naive. But nevertheless, <coughs> he um, uh, allowed me to, to, to go to Europe, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indeed, he, he, um, you know, he even encouraged me when I was a boy to, to try and learn the piano and, and things like that. European music is something which I am extremely uh, fond of and, and uh, uh, still am, am deeply fond of. Mm-hmm. But... Um, Going to to Europe was, uh, for me, both uh, something which was exciting to to uh, to arrive at, and at the same time, as I've said to to friends, a kind of a slow disabusement because I I, I sort of had clearly had ideals and so on which were very um, misplaced in terms of mm. what actually existed. But um, uh, my intention to do, to do anthropology was part of a, if you like, a, a purely secular choice. And I eventually did field work in a, in a pastoral nomadic society in the deserts of northern Sudan in the 60s. And uh, uh, it didn't deal with religion at all. It had to do with uh, their economy and their political system primarily, Mm -hmm. their local political system. Uh, Were were there any particular uh, political awakenings that you had uh, in the 60s? I mean, coming from this this background where where you you must have sensed, however young you were, the the turmoil in the the, uh, Pakistan region and then coming... Uh, to to um, uh, uh, your mature year, your mature yes. uh, years of education yes. uh, in the sixties. What stands out? Well, uh, I think one of the one of the moments, a very important moment of, of uh, in my life, uh, was the sixty seven war, and I've written about this uh, elsewhere or spoken about it anyway. It was uh, it was very traumatic for me in the sense that I, I couldn't quite understand the the uh, reaction of, of so many people in Britain to what had happened and uh, a kind of a kind of exultation on on the part of of the British, which I thought was was uh, inexplicable to me. Mm. Uh, as, I, as I've said elsewhere, I think I could understand that the Israelis might have felt, uh, you know, very uh, pleased with the fact of the victory. But why uh, were the British so so enormously satisfied mm. with it and, and emotionally uh, pleased? So, and that had to do with, of course, their earlier experiences, particularly the '56 war, mm-hmm. and their sense of humiliation uh, at that time when they were obliged, you remember, to to withdraw, um, and and some of that came back, and uh, that was very important for me, and it also made me uh, think much more seriously about uh, 
the entire colonial experience, which mm. uh, British society still somehow retained in, in, in part. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to ask you about being an anthropologist, but what you just said is maybe a lead into this, because as an anthropologist, uh, one thing that stands out in the work of yours that I read is, is your sensitivity to power and uh, the relationships of power between the, the former colonial uh, powers and, and their, their former dependencies. And it strikes me that what, what you just said, uh, it, was that an entree point into this insight? That, that is, with your background sort of being surprised by the exaltation and then sort of thinking about that? that yeah, I think that's, that's a very good question because I was... Um, I was certainly aware of power in a very general sense and aware of the history of, of, of colonialism, but the way in which it seemed to work within the psyche, if you like, of, of uh, people both individually and uh, collectively was something that I felt was uh, much more important uh, than I had realized. And, you know, as I said, when I came to, to, to Britain, I was also enormously enamored of uh, what one might call an Enlightenment uh, kind of culture, which I thought I would find. And I was enormously um, anticipatory uh, with regard to ideas of, of equality and justice and rationality and so on, you know, held rather naively, of course, as a, uh, as a boy uh, in my late uh, teens but nevertheless uh, very powerfully. And in some ways, I think what my engagement with or my concern for power uh, has been is a kind of complexification of those understandings. Mm. Uh, so at first I, was, I thought, my goodness, how can this be that this is the culture which you know, believes in all these things and compassion and, and so on and so forth, and yet uh, it seems not to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but then, of course, as, as I've said, I had to reinvent the wheel by recognizing that, you know, all sorts of cultures, all cultures in a sense, are uh, capable of, uh, of bias of different kinds, every culture. So the idea that there was one culture out there which would be without it was, in my view, very naive. Mm -hmm. the, uh, a thing that runs through your work uh, is the, the power of concepts and often how they are derived from uh, power relations mm -hmm. and how those concepts then obscure uh, the realities both of the, the conceiver and the object of the conception, so to speak. Uh, is that a fair, uh, maybe simple uh, statement about some of the things that have interested you? Yes, I suppose it's, it's, it's one way of, of putting it. Um, but I think of power uh, now, certainly, not simply as, as repressive and exploitative. I, I think of it also as, as something which is an opportunity to, uh, to create, to, to rebuild, and so on. Um, and the relationship between these, these two notions of power as it were, repressive and creative, um, is what fascinates me and, and is certainly very, 
um, very involved. The, the ideas, the, the concepts which interest me, therefore, are both concepts that, that obscure uh, the possibility of some kind of resistance mm. as well as the possibility of some kind of, of creativity as well. So um, I, I, I do agree that, that that's, that's not an unreasonable way of, of describing things, of looking at um, the way in which these concepts are put together, in which we've received in our culture, uh, and which in some ways are not um, adequately uh, and critically and from a distance examined. Uh, I'm curious, what in, in the kind of work you do? What 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 do you? What conclusions do you have about the skills that are required to do the kind of anthropology that you do well? Uh, 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 one thing that strikes me is sensitivity to culture, the the, the different cultures. What else? Well, certainly, I mean, languages. I yeah, mean, you have to have languages which are necessary for. What uh, I mean, as a medium, both in in the field where you're working, but but also at the same time, of other perspectives, even within the West, as it were, you know, to to uh, recognise that there are different national traditions as well. Um, I think the the ability to listen is very important. I don't know that that's the kind of skill that can be very um, sort of systematically or formally learned, but mm-hmm. uh, it certainly has become easier for me, both through teaching, particularly through teaching, uh, and through uh, field work. Uh, and I think that that's absolutely crucial for uh, the anthropologist, to be able to listen, as it were, without, without too many presuppositions, um, and being, being open to arriving at, at conclusions that uh, might be quite startling eventually when you arrive at them, mm. but not think that you have an answer. I'm giving you a really, perhaps not quite the answer you want no, about uh, skills. But yeah. Uh, well, but that, this is, I should, maybe I should have fa- phrased the question better, but th- that's the answer I wanted, I whether I, I gave see. you the, the right question. Now, how, how does the student and the scholar... Uh, transcend the biases that come out of their own culture. That that would seem to be a big problem. It is a big problem, and uh, certainly, I, th- I you know I don't think any of us can can uh, completely overcome our biases and and the f- formation that that has made us uh, what we are. But in so far as one can try by encountering very different kinds of cultural. Um, phenomena, very different kinds of of, uh, uh, of human beings in uh, different societies, and demand uh, of oneself that one listen, as I said a moment ago, uh, and that one one uh, try and uh, question not only the what one finds out there uh, to question also oneself. I mean, I'm a great believer in, in, in criticism and a criticism which I think should not be confined only to, as it were, the, the, the cultural phenomena that we, we encounter, but also uh, our own uh, criticism, self-criticism. 
Um, I don't know. One can only try. And, of course, we won't completely succeed, I'm convinced. But, but we can try and, and question ourselves. Uh, if, if one looks at your works, it, it's, it's very clear that they are steeped in comparative studies, comparative theory, uh, 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 interdisciplinary uh, work, and, and combining that all with a sensitivity to the, the complexity of a, of a particular setting and so on. Uh, talk a little about that. I know you're, you're work, you've, you've worked on reform in Egypt and, and religion, and, and it's a, what emerges is a much more complex mm-hmm. picture of what uh, the interface between modernity and what, what the West would call uh, modernity versus tradition. Right. Well, you know, one of the things I've been very struck by, and I'll come back to, to uh, more directly to your, to your question in a minute, but is, um, as I, I put it, that within the West there is much more argument, uh, much more difference about what modernity means and uh, what it entails, what, how one gets to it or, or what its problems, uh, its primary problems are. Too often, uh, partly because it's a presentation of uh, Westerners who have, uh, as it were, um, directed their words to uh, the non-Western world and also as a consequence people in the non-Western world, there seems to be a, what I call a single face to modernity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is no longer entirely the case. I know that there are all sorts of developments going on, especially in East Asia and, and uh, South Asia and so on. But there is a, there is a lingering sense here of, um, you know, we know what modernity is, modernity, and we know how to get there, um, and it's quite different from, from our tradition. I think in the West one doesn't think that. Mm. One recognizes how important uh, traditions are in all, all intellectual traditions. Mm. Are, are, uh, traditions, first of all, we work through and we, we rethink them, but they're still traditions. And we think of them uh, in, or we try to think of them in a modern, i.e. contemporary way. Um, mm. So I, I, would, I would say that the... Uh, the question of uh, you know the very different kinds of approaches to to modernity for me um, requires an uh, an exploration of uh, kinds of knowledge from very different disciplines, both <coughs> Western disciplines, uh, if one might call them that. I'm I'm not very happy with that, but still, you know roughly what I mean, and. Um, the more traditional disciplines uh, in the Middle East, theology, uh, law, uh, say Islamic law, Islamic theology, and so on, are, I think, very important to to get into, as well as the um, different opportunities in in the disciplines that we have in our our liberal institutions. Uh, I'm... uh 
looking here at the definition in your book, and I'll show the book, The Formations of the Secular, and uh, just uh, as an autobiographical note, you, you say modernity is a project or rather a series of interlinked projects that certain people in power seek to achieve. The project aims at, and then you, you mm-hmm. list the, and, and what's, what just sort of struck me was uh, many of these things must have been in your mind's eye when you came to England uh, thinking that you, you had found a, a secular mecca. And a modern, yes. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. So, yes. so that was me. And, and in another place, and I can't unfortunately find the quote right now, you mentioned that we forget that the the notion of modernity that the West has come up with really emerges out of a particular time in our history mm-hmm. when we made a transformation mm-hmm. and and we forget that mm-hmm. and then want to apply the concept that emerged from that to mm-hmm. other peoples mm-hmm. who come f- from different practices and different histories exactly I think that I think I think that that's that's very true, and that is of course part of the of uh, the reason why we find so many problems, both social and political, in that part of the world. Um, indeed, we we sometimes you might say uh, some of these problems arise here too uh, in the West, or whether it's the United States or Europe. Um, for some people, the idea of, of modernity is quite straightforward uh, and certain things uh, must be rejected if one is to be truly modern um, and, 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 in, and for other people, not so. You know, one has seen arguments about the, the British uh, political system. No doubt you're familiar with these arguments which say, well, of course, the British system is not completely modern yet because, you know, the Church of England still has mm-hmm. a, a certain uh, important place in the British government uh, and you can't call that modern because in a modern state, uh, and here we, we think of either the United States or France, both very different kinds of secular arrangements, um, in which in some ways uh, the religion is at least politically intended to be kept out. So, But I'm not sure that it's a good description, say, of, of, of the British system to say it's not modern. This presupposes a single uh, model. Uh, the question is, is it is it uh, is it the kind of society that is that produces uh, uh, obstacles in, in the path of, of uh, uh, various developments which we think of as valuable or not, mm-hmm. rather than is it modern or not? I mean I, that's why I'm a little leery uh, of the idea of, of modernity as well. And 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 you go on to point out in in this book that uh, 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 that the 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 theory makes the assumption that it's a binary choice that it's one or the other, and and you're 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 trying to help us understand that there's much greater complexity, and 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 in a way, I think you're suggesting that. Uh, you can't actually understand what's going on in a place like Egypt mm-hmm. and how it, it, it reformed itself in, mm-hmm. in, in religious matters and how this, this uh, interface between what came from the outside mm-hmm. interface with, with kind of living practices and, and a living religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this, is, this is absolutely true as far as... as uh, you know, my work on, on Egypt is concerned. This is what I've 
I've tried to do. And I think of this as, a, as, a, uh, as an anthropology uh, which is, uh, uh, I think, appropriate for our time, uh, by which I don't mean it's the, it's the only thing that, that one can do uh, as an anthropologist, but I think it's very important to be able to somehow tackle the question of various interconnections as well as uh, distinctions, but in ways that are not binary, as you, you've just uh, uh, rightly quoted. Because I think that, that the language uh, that we use, that everybody uses, makes uh, for very different possibilities of interpretation uh, mm -hmm. and of living. Uh, and therefore, binaries are, are a rigid way of, of uh, approaching these problems. I think it's, it's, it's a mistake to even think of you know, the secular and the religious in strictly binary terms. I think that there are all sorts of interpenetrations, especially if you look at it historically as well as cross-culturally. Mm. You see that there are various connections, various transmutations of concepts, of modes of behavior, uh, of uh, organizations, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you write, in an interdependent world, traditional cultures do not spontaneously grow or develop into modern cultures. People are pushed, seduced, coerced, or persuaded into trying to change themselves into something else, something that allows them to be redeemed. Uh, I'm curious because, of course, this is an insight into what's going on in the developing world, but, but one could almost apply this to uh, uh, the United States itself and the way our secular modern elites have been shocked by the revival of, of religion in this country and the way it seeks to intrude into politics. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I know, I, 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 I'm still learning about the United States uh, and uh, the the problem or the problems that people see uh, of uh, uh, secularity and, uh, and religion. But certainly uh, I think there is a greater awareness among various people of, uh, of a complexity which we have overlooked so that one can try to work out ways of accommodating a certain kind of multiplicity and of, of interconnection without allowing this to be repressive uh, of individuals or of traditions and so on. Uh, and this is very difficult in, in any culture, certainly uh, in the Middle East as well. You have forces which are repressive and you have forces which are, which are opening up. Um, and it's not always easy, and I say this not as a, as a criticism, but as a fact, not easy for people to know, uh, certainly in the Middle East, um, where they should be going uh, mm. and what, what uh, as it were, a more uh, adequate and, and uh, reasonable and just uh, development of, of a tradition uh, in, in moments of, of change might be. So, it, and, and I think that this is true here too. Um, you know, people are on the one hand worried by certain developments uh, in, in the demand for uh, the intrusion of, of uh, religion into, into politics, but in other ways they do recognize that there are some aspects of what we call religion which somehow uh, could have a place 
as it were, in the, in the public square. Mm -hmm. uh, but and, how to do and and the the important thing here, which we should say for our audience, is that uh, s s secularity, being secular, uh, defines a world in which religion is separated from the public space, and and uh, uh, the t the two, although side by side, do not meet. And and what we are uh, encountering in the world and here at home is the, the concept doesn't work completely. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think unless one, one finds ways in which one can uh, address that difficulty, um, you know, the outcome will often be rather unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that it's necessary not just to keep insisting on uh, a straightforward separation of two things which are themselves very ambiguous, religion on the one side and, and secularity, uh, on the other, but uh, uh, to recognize that that there have to be one must analyze out what the implications of each are, to what extent um, elements of each can be changed, accommodated, made to uh, to answer uh, for its its own uh, claims, and I think that this can apply to both secularity and and uh, religion, and and a place where this problem emerges very strongly is in Europe today, as it deals with its uh, Muslim communities. Absolutely, yes. Uh, it is. It's 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 a matter of uh, both of uh, great interest to me uh, as to what's happening in Europe, and at the same time of of considerable dismay that uh, Europe has become so. Um, rigid in, in many respects, and so fearful, really, of uh, a population that is, on the whole, n uh, initially not at all, uh, should not be seen as, as threatening, mm -hmm. uh, while elements might be, but I don't think that uh, the majority uh, should be seen in this way. Um, and there are ways of accommodating, and some are more, and some states and some national traditions are, are very rigid. The French one, of course, is, is uh, famously uh, extremely uh, rigid about accommodating um, certain kinds of religious uh, uh, differences. For example, the veiling, the, the, the whole veiling, issue, yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But you know, um, many people often forget that, that the French, who, who are supposed to be so fiercely uh, laic, are also uh, able to accommodate uh, religious schools. Mm -hmm. uh, Catholic schools, which are, which have uh, a place within the government educational system, mm -hmm. uh, and it's possible for people to do whatever they like, including cover their head and so on, uh, in uh, religious schools, but not in government schools. I mean, there's a degree of, you know, uh, contradiction and incoherence in in our approaches to to secularism in Europe as well as perhaps in the United States. Uh, you write that uh, that, that uh, uh, when Europe or the West errs in in its overemphasis or overstatement of its own modernity, that it, it the belief you write the belief that human beings kept can be separated from their histories and traditions is uh, 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 makes it possible to urge a Europeanization of the Islamic world, and, and you're you're really suggesting that 
is going to create problems? Are you suggesting that? Or what are the implications beyond an insensitivity to the reality of people that one presumably would want to integrate? Well, in the first place, yeah, I think that there are problems that will arise and have already arisen. The problems are partly also the result of certain uh, claims, historical claims that that liberal Europe has uh, about uh, degrees of autonomy, degrees of, of uh, as it were, self-determination, which which are not simply political, uh, but also social, cultural, psychological, and so on. Uh, how is it that that these that these ideas, which were regarded as basic to Europe's inheritance, have now suddenly become uh, difficult to apply and you have to have one model. I think that um, integration, in other words, is something that that requires uh, a certain amount of give and take. The nations of, 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 of Europe, as in the United States, uh, have never been stable, uh, stationary, they have evolved over time. We know this. This is, uh, but this this very banal fact it tends to be forgotten time and again. That you know, if we are if we are changing, then uh, we can't rigidly say there is just our way of life which must stand forever uh, and unchanged. But also something which in which one can give and take and it, uh, at, at a reasonable level. Uh, and that should apply, I think, to immigrants as well. Mm-hmm. What, what, what is, uh, I, I, as a social scientist, one has to analyze the factors that uh, provide the social or political base for this blindness to uh, both the inadequacy of the concept and the reality of one's own history and evolution and the reality, history, and evolution of of, uh, the other in this case. Right. Well, uh, you know, there are clearly uh, elements, uh, if you like, on both sides. So it's not just a question of a straightforward blindness on one side. But uh, I think in some ways... uh, there's a greater responsibility on the part of the party which is much stronger uh, and the party which is more secure in dealing with uh, groups that are that are less secure, that that uh, are expected to to transform themselves. What are the origins of of these? I think they are largely historical. In the case of Europe, uh, the the entire uh, colonial experience has been very strong. I think that there's no question in my mind, both for Britain and for France, certainly. In Germany, it's a little more complicated uh, because the immigrants there are, are not from... I mean, the Germans never had that kind of, of empire uh, as the French and the, and the British did. But um, that's one part of it. And I think, if you like, the... the, the uh, the modern uh, nations in Europe are not sufficiently um, liberal, not sufficiently modern, mm. uh, one might even <laughs> say provocatively, uh, although I've criticized that idea in, in, in a simple, uh, as a simple idea, um, in, in not taking their own uh, values seriously enough. Um, but there are all sorts of incentives 
for political economic reasons, it's easier to find uh, scapegoats and so on. I often think that in the case of Europe, I've said uh, again provocatively that it's almost as though the Europeans now no longer able to publicly uh, denounce Jews and and uh, persecute them, uh, however subrosa uh, sort of anti-Semitic some of them might be, but it's no longer possible for a person in Europe to be to be taken seriously as a respectable public figure uh, mm-hmm. and be anti-Semitic. This is no longer true. Uh, this is not true, of course, in relation to immigrants. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of shift almost. It's al- almost, one might suggest, because they can't any longer, as it were, uh, choose one outsider uh, or define one group mm-hmm. as an outsider, which they did and then right up through the 30s, which was the most terrible period, um, now they have to find somebody else. I mean, I'm, I'm making a provocative uh, formula out of it. Mm-hmm. And, and you're not <clears throat> saying that having lost the one, you have to do the other. It just, it, no. it, yeah, it, it, yeah. it just tends in that direction. In that right? direction. Yeah. Because, of course, many people don't do that. I mean, yeah. there are lots of very responsible people, uh, and lots of people who are warning against uh, precisely the attitude which I've been describing uh, with some dismay. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of Europeans who, who have made uh, the very points that I'm making already. Mm-hmm. about it being in conflict with uh, liberal ideas, with, with democratic ideas, mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk now about uh, 9-11 and, and look at the way we've looked at this problem of suicide bombing. And let me show you, uh, the audience, uh, your book uh, on suicide bombing, which is a, a series of lectures you gave at... Uh, uh, the University of California, Irvine, I believe. Uh, this is uh, uh, after 9-11. Uh, we, we were in a situation of having to reconceptualize our adversaries. So a lot, some, a lot of these themes that we've been talking about come into play in, in the way the West uh, uh, sees the other. What, 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 what do you see as... What insights do you bring to that to that definitional issue uh, that uh, that uh, you know follows up on what we've just been talking about? Well, I think that um, in some ways this, this connects up with uh, some of the things we've already said, uh, and that is the need to look critically at many of our received. Uh, categories and and received notions. In other words, not just to criticize the 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 others or the perpetrators uh, of that uh, terrorist attack, but to go deeper. And again, there were people who already suggested this at one time. At the time, it was a bit difficult to make this uh, to to make this point uh, forcefully. After 9-11. After 9-11, yeah. Nevertheless, there were some people, and since then there have been more, who have urged that, uh, you know, what we also need is an examination of uh, the relationships between, say, the United States, uh, in this case it was the United States, and uh, the rest of the world, but particularly, of course, in this case, the, the, uh, the Middle East. Uh, 
uh, instead of just blaming, just as it's, I think, um, quite wrong for Middle Easterners to, to blame everything that happens in, in Middle Eastern countries uh, on the outside, which I think is not true. I, I'm extremely critical of the political situation in the Middle East. But it should be so, too, uh, in the United States, so that one can look critically at our relationship, as I, as I put it, uh, to uh, violence. In what way, hmm. historically, as well as within the country, as well as between uh, the United States and other parts of the world, what has been the relationship uh, to violence? And how has it been invoked uh, at certain points uh, and uh, denied uh, at other points? And what uh, are the consequences of, of, of what we've done? I say we because I'm already now an American citizen, of course. Mm. Um, so I became an American citizen in the summer of 2001. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Rather sort of uh, uh, symbolically. Anyway, so that's, that's what I would say uh, mm-hmm. in answer to. I don't know whether I've really uh, adequately. Y- 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 yes, you not. had. But let, let's explore it. But, but I, at least in terms of looking at the other, you, you say the, or, or you suggest the way you see, define, explain terrorism gives a justification for the actions of the state. That's my reading of what yes. you're saying. In other words, that that in in uh, going down one road of interpretation, yes. uh, it then uh, makes it easier for the state to practice all kinds of violence uh, and come up with a moral justification for that. And a violence not only on the outside world, but within. Yeah, right, right, exactly. right. Uh, and, uh, you know, so many people have complained, uh, a restriction of, of liberties and all sorts of, of, of things. We're going over very familiar ground, which nevertheless needs, I think, to be stressed again and again. Um, I think that the whole question of, um, of war and terrorism has, has fascinated me. When I wrote this book... Uh, and gave the lectures, I, I showed it to a friend uh, who said, yes, he liked it very much. Uh, and, and he could see, uh, he was an American born and bred, uh, he could see that uh, I was rightly saying that in some circumstances uh, terrorism might be justified. And I said, no, mm-hmm. this is not mm-hmm. what this book is about. I am not trying to justify uh, terrorism. I'm just trying to shake the sort of binary categorization mm-hmm. uh, uh, which gives rise to certain kinds of policies. So I had to actually spell this out. You may have seen this in, in my short introduction mm-hmm. and say this is not uh, a, mm-hmm. intended as, as a justification for it. Um, I've, uh, as I've mentioned uh, to you, I, I've become particularly interested also in the whole idea of um, just war and the reasons for it. And and, um, I'm working uh, at the moment on uh, that very category and uh, the way in which it is a kind of moralization of war, which I think should not be moralized at all. I'm not a pacifist, but I I don't for one moment think that that just war is is a coherent uh, and and valid... uh, notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
the way in which this justifies certain kinds of violences, which are often of an enormously greater scale mm-hmm. uh, than anything that, that the wretched uh, terrorists uh, can do. Uh, there are so many things, not only in, in, in the way in which we have used air power in, in war, for mm-hmm. example, uh, but also in this very ambiguous business of, of when one transgresses the law of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the law of war is, uh, for me, fascinatingly, uh, much more ambiguous than I thought it was. There's a, a, a very fine and insightful writer on this, uh, uh, and, uh, law specialist, David Kennedy, who's written, I've quoted him in, in my book, but since then he's written another one on, on uh, the law of war. Uh, which is, uh, which has, I think, extremely good insights about uh, the law of war being not a series of rules which cannot be transgressed and which are supposed to justify just war, but really a language, what he calls a language for argument. Mm-hmm. And that's what the law of war is. Um, there are others who've, who've also developed this. It's, uh, again, an international law specialist in City University, who has written a number of wonderful articles um, called, uh, if I remember rightly, was it uh, Jonathan uh, Berman, or Nathaniel Berman, who has written on this subject as well, very much uh, about the question of the construction in war of various categories, including that which is allowed, you know, the proportionality business, the question of necessity, and so on. Um, so what I, what I tried to do in this book, first of all, is to, to shake those categories so that we could think for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't provide any answers, as you know very well, um, but I, want, I hope that some readers will begin to question for themselves and, and, and find answers for themselves. And then f- in the final part, of course, I was still fascinated by the reasons for horror uh, mm-hmm. at suicide bombing. And there were all sorts of reasons, it seemed to me, one could draw on to try and explain what that sense of horror was, mm-hmm. which could be looked at uh, w- without being moralistic about it. Because as an anthropologist, I was, and here I was much more mm-hmm. thinking about it anthropologically. Um, and also reminding ourselves that, uh, you know, in modern society, we ha- are committed to all sorts of conditions that would otherwise uh, be considered terroristic and horrific. And one of those, which I do mention in the book, you may remember, has to do with uh, uh, nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. The well, go ahead, please. please. No, no. no, you'll finish. Go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say that, you know, in a number of official definitions, terrorism is defined as not only an act, but also as a threat. Mm-hmm. The threat of terrorism. Uh, I mean, a particular kind of threat makes it terrorism. Mm-hmm. Now, it has seemed to me, as well as to legions of other people, that possessing nuclear weapons, which you say you are going to use mm-hmm. if necessary, and you will destroy not only the enemy, but in the process yourself, you're prepared to do mm-hmm. that, 
seems to me logically have the logical structure of terrorism Mm -hmm. and yet we don't see that Mm -hmm. uh, and we don't address it quite in those terms and I think we should. This this part of the conversation is raising an interesting point, and that is, as a a social scientist, as you uh, try to disentangle uh, the the complexity of our own development and thinking about an issue, violence and war, violence between combatants and so on, uh, we we basically uh, we basically. Uh, get some new insights about ourselves. We see uh, uh, different things about the adversary. Uh, now, what's interesting is is the point you made about what your friend said, because when you begin to do that, what you're saying becomes politicized, mm-hmm. and people say, oh, yes. you're defending suicide. Talk a little about that, because it really is an important issue of where the academy can have insights, uh, but in the, in the, uh, the, the in, in that those insights becoming part of the political debate, there is a politicization in which people are accused of saying things they didn't say. Yes, of course, this is very difficult to 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 control to some extent. Um, uh, let me approach this indirectly by by referring to a, a review that was uh, made of, of of this book in the uh, Times uh, uh, supplement the Sunday Supplement uh, book review uh, by Samantha Power, which in fact was uh, about three books, including one of Petraeus and, and this book and one other, I forget mm. which. And when she turned to that, she said, among other things, well, she said a couple of nice things, but she disagreed, of course, fundamentally with it. Uh, but she described it as an angry book, and she said, in mm. the end, rage overcomes him. And I've been saying to my friends... You know, mm. did she read the book or didn't she? Well, the point is, you can't control mm. how people read you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, you know, this is, this is simply a rediscovery of a fairly obvious thing. Uh, it's no use by saying, no, no, uh, I wasn't uh, angry, uh, and I certainly wasn't enraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people will read you in odd ways, and to some extent you can control that by at least explaining yourself. But in the end, there are things that you can't, I think, totally control, mm-hmm. uh, how people will take up uh, uh, what you're saying. My hope is that, uh, uh, that the, insofar as there's a politicization, it can be seen as an indirect one. I mean, I think of, if you like, of democratic politics also as, as a kind of personal... Uh, uh, interpersonal uh, kind of ethical encounter mm. in which one can uh, one should be able to treat uh, others with whom one is uh, engaging uh, on equal terms critically but also uh, uh, listening uh, carefully uh, instead of, of jumping to the conclusion that uh, you know, that they belong to a certain category, what they've said, aha, we already know what he or she is saying, uh, and we really will not uh, tolerate that sort of thing. Uh, and, and asking oneself why one has these feelings uh, of rejection, 
as well as we proceed. You know, for me, uh, in a sense, democracy is not just about uh, you know voting and so on, which is in some ways um, the least uh, uh, the least uh, problematic uh, aspect of of democracy. There is that other uh, aspect, which I think is, is is very important and very neglected, including the readiness to to be uh, self-critical. Uh, Professor Assad, uh, on that note, I, I want to thank you for coming to the campus to be the Forster Lecturer and also for appearing on our program. Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.